This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A new poll shows union-funded attack ads aimed at progressive conservative leader Patrick Brown appear to be hurting the party with female voters. You've probably seen the ads on TV. They hammer Brown for his pro-life voting record as an MP in former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's conservative government when he was there from 2006 to 2015. And that these ads now question his claim of now being pro-choice. So the campaign research survey, which we'll get into a host of numbers for you, shows that PC leader Patrick Brown's support is currently at 35%, followed by Premier Kathleen Wynne's liberals at 32%, Andrea Horvath's New Democrats come in third at 23%, and Mike Schreiner's Green Party has 9% support. Ali Ufest is the CEO of Campaign Research, and he joins us on The Bill Kelly Show now. Ali, good morning. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, how are you? Not too bad. Uh, when was this survey conducted, and how many people were involved? So the survey was actually conducted uh, earlier this week. It ran from November 6th uh, through to November 9th, so we just came out of field yesterday. So the numbers are as fresh as they can be, uh, and we sampled a total of 1,263 Ontario uh, residents and voters. What do you make of the results? Uh, I guess no surprise that Brown is still up top, uh, followed by Wynn and then Horvath, uh, but, but there are some other details that we need to look at. But at first glance, what do you think of the results? Yeah, so overall, to, to your point, just uh, at a high level, when we look at uh, voting intent, uh, we see it's, uh, it's still uh, anyone's game. Uh, I mean, uh, the, you know, the Conservatives are ahead, of course, at uh, 35% overall, uh, but the Liberals aren't too far behind at 32%. Uh, but what we've definitely seen, uh, you know, over the last five or six months is a narrowing of the results. Um, you know, just by way of example, back in June, we had the Conservatives uh, up at 38% versus the Liberals at 30 And, uh, you know, fast forward to, uh, to right now, and uh, we see that gap uh, of 8% narrowed to 3%. Um, so, uh, you know, the trajectory isn't uh, in, in Patrick Brown and the PC's favor, but uh, uh, aside from that, it's really anyone's game between the Liberals and, and the Conservatives, and even the NDP aren't faring too poorly at uh, 23%. Uh, last month, uh, the Tories were at 36%, Liberals 32 NDP at 25 so the NDP have gained a couple of percentage points within the last month. Um, but uh, for, for, for the most part, I mean, these are really stagnant from, from month to month, although when you did compare with June, there is obviously some difference there. D- does that mean that the attack ads against Brown are working better than the ones that we've seen uh, against Kathleen Wynne? Yeah, so I, I would say... Um, you know, to your point, there's, there's been a number of ads, whether they've been third-party ads from the Working Families Coalition or, or WOW, or uh, we've seen liberal partisan ads or even uh, conservative partisan ads. Um, certainly, I, I, would, uh, I would say, uh, based on the data that we're seeing, that uh, the uh, third-party ads uh, targeted against Patrick Brown have been resonating more among the electorate in Ontario than any of the other uh, ads out there, whether they're liberal or, or, cons- or uh, PC. Um, certainly we see when we look at uh, Patrick Brown's uh, approval and disapproval numbers, his, his personal popularity, we see uh, the most movement uh, among, uh, among those numbers. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, we uh, believe that it's in large part driven by a lot of the uh, third-party attack ads. I do want to get to those approval ratings in a minute. We're talking with Ellie Ufest, uh, the CEO of Campaign Research here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill. These uh, third-party ads, you, you mentioned, wow, working Ontario women uh, is uh, behind one of them. They seem to be targeting women. Is that, is that a strategy that uh, seems to be working? 
Yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, I, I can't really comment on who they're specifically targeting, but, I'm, uh, you know, any reasonable person could probably infer that they're targeting women. And so when we look at uh, women in particular as it relates to Patrick Brown's personal uh, popularity, we see his approval rating uh, decline by a significant margin in November among female voters. Uh, in October, uh, females uh, approved him at 22%, and now in November, uh, his approval ratings have declined to 15%. Uh, conversely, those that disapprove of, of Patrick Brown, and again, we're looking at female voters only, in October, disapproval was 19%, and now we see a significant increase in November, uh, up to 24%. So uh, it, it appears that the WOW ads, which, which presumably target women, are having a material and significant impact on female voters in particular. Uh, overall approval ratings for Patrick Brown as well, uh, in September, 25% approval, now 21%. Disapproval rating has gone the other way from 25 to 29%. Percent uh, and fifty percent really have have no opinion, which also to me is a, a pretty high number as well. Exactly. So there's there's probably two sides to, to that story. The the intent of the PC ads probably was to raise Patrick Brown's awareness uh, in, in a positive way, of course. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing now is uh, his uh, his don't the people that don't know about Patrick Brown. To your point, is is fifty percent, and we've seen that pretty consistent month over month. Um, so whatever, uh, you know, communications or whatever awareness the PC party was trying to build for Patrick Brown, it doesn't seem to be having that much of an effect uh, in that regard. The flip side of that, though, is, um, you know, the numbers that you were just citing, his overall uh, app- uh, approval and disapproval numbers. We see, you know, 25% approved of Patrick Brown in October uh, overall, and we see a significant decline in November uh, to 21%. Disapproval, again, 25% in October. Uh, up significantly to 29% in November. And, uh, of course, uh, the women uh, voters in Ontario are the ones that are driving uh, that incline, or sorry, that increase and that decrease among approval and disapproval. Uh, that's a difference uh, in, in both those, overall uh, approval and disapproval ratings of four percentage points month over month. Is that something that the PCs might be concerned about? Exactly. I, if, if I, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, advising the PCs or, or Patrick Brown in any way. Um, but I would, I would certainly be, uh, if I was on their team and I was advising them, I would certainly be cautious of those numbers because, uh, again, the the spirit of the PCIs was probably to build a positive profile of, of Patrick Brown, and uh, seemingly those aren't having uh, any effect in that regard. Uh, what seems to be uh, you know, capturing the imaginations of Ontario voters is the negative attack ads. Uh, and so certainly, as Patrick Brown heads into the election uh, later uh, next year, um, he, you know, he and his team don't want these negative attack ads resonating and being in the back of voters' minds as they go uh, into the election. Uh, so certainly, uh, if I was Patrick Brown and his team, I would, I would be uh, worried about this, and I would be sort of re-strategizing how do I build Patrick Brown's uh, awareness Uh, in a positive way among the Ontario electorate. Campaign Research has been doing uh, polling for a a long time now. Is a a four percentage point difference uh, month over month, is that uh, that a large uh, figure or is that uh, reasonable or or something that's common? Yeah, so we... we it's certainly, uh, in this regard, um, 25% for Patrick Brown's approval in October to 21 in November. That is a significant uh, decline, um, uh, you know, just, just given the, uh, the sample sizes that we're looking at every month. That is uh, certainly a uh, significant um, uh, decline month over month. Um, so, again, uh, you know, that is something to be cautious of and, uh, and perhaps worrisome uh, for Patrick Brown and, and the party. Uh, because that is uh, that isn't something that we would see uh, ordinarily month to month unless there was something uh, significant happening among the electorate. Uh, 
We're chatting with uh, Ellie Ufist, uh, CEO of Campaign Research here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill this week. Let's move over to uh, Premier Wynne and uh, her Liberal Party uh, for her, her, her approval rating. Uh, it's really more of the same, and that's not very good. Exactly. Uh, you know, her, her overall uh, um, approval, uh, 16 uh, she's she's kind of been hovering around you know the the 16 to 19 percent range basically all year. So uh, she's basically bottomed out. Uh, you know there isn't really, uh, from what we can see, really uh, any more room for her to to go down. Um, which is I, I suppose on one hand you know good. There isn't really you know she sort of hit the bottom. I suppose uh, there's only you know up for her I guess in this regard. Um, but uh, but overall you're right. Uh, she she's got the lowest approval of any of any of the three main party leaders. Um, but she certainly has remained stable uh, year uh, throughout this year. And uh, the NDP's Andrea Horvath has seen some uh, pretty nice gains from from month to month, and uh, well, some ups and downs as well. Yeah, so, so Andrea Horvath is kind of the interesting one between the three leaders. Mm-hmm. Because we see again uh, among uh, the three party leaders, she's personally quite popular among the electorate. Uh, she she by far has the strongest approval ratings and uh, favorability scores of any of the three party leaders. The problem for, and- uh, for Andrea Horvath is. Uh, the NDP party is what's, uh, you know, limiting her ability to, to, I suppose, properly resonate among the Ontario uh, electorate. Uh, you know, when we look at the three main parties, the NDP has by far the lowest um, uh, voter intent. Uh, but the inverse of that is Andrea Horvath has by far the highest uh, uh, um, uh, personal approval ratings. And so if I was counseling Andrea Horvath, I would probably try to figure out how I can um, draw upon my personal popularity and uh, and bring it over uh, to the party. Um, so Andrea Horvath is sort of in an interesting position where she's personally quite popular, but uh, her party uh, is is certainly not that popular among the three main parties. It, it would be interesting to see her as the leader of one of the other two parties and how those numbers might differ. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess uh, you know if uh, if she was perhaps uh, you know uh, the, the leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, you know that you know the, the whole the whole uh, election uh, next year might be a completely different story. But of course, uh, you know we've got Wynn as leader of the Liberal Party and uh, and Horvath as the NDP. And uh, you know I don't think that's going to change. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. But yeah, it would certainly make a more for a more interesting dynamic. Yeah, it certainly would uh, definitely. And uh, you know it, we can only guess and wonder what uh, what would happen. But uh, you know I have a feeling that whoever was the leader of the Liberals with all the the scandals and uh, controversies that uh, they might be in tough uh, either way. Um, uh, the next poll, just a, a, another monthly poll on on the way next month. Is that uh, the, the course that you guys are taking? Exactly. So we've been uh, tracking these numbers uh, uh, every month uh, this year, and so that's why we're able to kind of look back. For example, you know we were we were talking about June numbers. We're able to look back uh, to June or any any other month uh, this year, and so. Uh, we're going to be doing this every single month, uh, you know, leading up to the election, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the numbers continue to shape themselves, um, you know, in light of uh, you know some of these uh, political ads that have been out there. And now, of course, it'll probably go quiet, uh, just given the new uh, regulations that kicked in uh, over the last couple of days as it relates to political advertising. Uh, and then, as things ramp up uh, next spring into the election, uh, it'll it'll continue to be uh, an interesting race to watch because right now it's very close, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what the parties do to shake things up. Last one for you. Is there a trend over the past several months that you can point to that uh, was a bit of an eye-opener, maybe something you didn't expect? Yeah, so, you know, the trend I think uh, that, that's most interesting is 
uh, how the results overall between the, the PC party and the Liberal Party have been narrowing. Uh, you know, if we look back even to uh, prior to June, we see that there was, uh, you know, a slightly larger gap between the two parties. And, you know, through the course of the summer and now into the fall, we see a narrowing of that gap. Uh, you know, just to go back to June again, we saw the PCs up at 38, the Liberals at 30. Uh, and now we see, uh, you know, a much tighter race, uh, 35 uh, for the PCs and, and 32 for the Liberals. And so um, it's, it's really, it's, it's a dead heat. And so if an election were held tomorrow uh, with these numbers, we would probably have a Liberal, um, a liberal or PC uh, minority government. Uh, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a majority for anybody. And really it's just a toss-up as to who, who would win if an election were held tomorrow. So, uh, you know, for me, that's, that's, that's probably the most surprising thing to see, uh, just uh, how, how the numbers have, have narrowed uh, over the course of the last five or six months. Interesting stats. Ellie Ufes, thanks for sharing them this morning. Thanks very much for your time. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Three more toys have been inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame. The board game Clue, the Wiffle Ball, and the Paper Airplane make up the class of 2017. The trio of toys joins more than 60 other toys, including the Frisbee, Bicycle, Barbie, Hot Wheels, Lego, Marbles, Monopoly, and Mr. Potato Head, that have been inducted into the hall since its opening in 1998. Now, to make the cut, because they don't just let anything in, toys must have inspired creative play across generations. This year's other finalists, and uh, I, I think a lot of them meet this criteria, but they didn't get in. Uh, Risk, Magic 8-Ball, Matchbox Cars, My Little Pony. I mean, that was a shocker. I thought for sure they'd get in. Uh, Pez Candy Dispensers, Play Food, Sand, Transformers, and the card game Uno. Uh, historic and modern versions of the winners uh, displayed in the hall, which is located inside the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York. Chris Bench is the Vice President for Collections at the Strong, and he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Chris, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick. I'm great. So maybe we'll start with this. How are the inductees chosen? Take us through the process. You have all these nominees uh, or finalists. How do you decide who gets in and who doesn't? You know, it's tough to weigh those 12 finalists. All of them are highly deserving. Any one of them could really have a place of honor in the National Toy Hall of Fame. And it's a matter that we turn over to our National Selection Committee. That's a about uh, a group of about two dozen educators and historians, people with knowledge of toys and the toy industry, child psychologists. They're the ones, kind of the Academy and our own little Academy Awards, who make their recommendations on which two or three toys should be the ones that get their moment in the spotlight this year. Have you, uh, have you been in meetings where they're deciding or conference calls? Uh, I'm just kind of picturing the debate from these historians and educators kind of uh, picking and choosing or, or voting for their favorites. It is less... Uh, smoke-filled room than you might think. <laughs> they actually get these independently, electronically, this being the era that we're in, and they come back with their weighted votes so that a number one vote counts for more than their number three choice. So that really helps us see what floats to the top. And it's fascinating to see what sort of gravitational pull 
exerts on them each year. And this year, they really came together on these top three, and there was a very decisive choice. Before we get to the the three honorees, if you will, the three inductees this year, there's always with every Hall of Fame there's a, or Hall of Fame vote, there is a snub. Who would be the biggest snub, in your opinion, among these finalists? Well, I think uh, that Magic 8-Ball is the Susan Lucci of the toy world <laughs> right now. Wow. It has been a finalist seven times and has sadly ne- never made it over the finish line. That's uh, that's pretty rough for the uh, Magic 8-Ball. you think it would see it's coming. <laughs> Maybe it says something about its future uh, foretelling qualities. <laughs> yeah, I would have went with the the top snub, My Little Pony. I mean, you, you talk about a toy that was a hot item when it came out. Uh, there's been uh, cartoons or TV shows, movies. Uh, kids still play with them today. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it meets the criteria of across generations because I think more girls play with My Little Pony than boys. Uh, so maybe that uh, is uh, the, the snub part. But uh, I think My Little Pony, maybe in a future vote, we'll, we'll get in. Well, I'm hoping that Matchbox cars earn a place in the Hall of Fame soon. They were a big part of my growing up years, and Hot Wheels toy cars are already in. Hot Mm -hmm. Wheels are newer. Matchbox was there first. So it's almost time, I think, for Matchbox to get into the Hall of Fame. I think Hot Wheels, certainly with the the marketing thrust behind it, really overtook Matchbox cars in, in terms of popularity, I think. Absolutely. And they were so much faster with those fast axles that let them speed along unlike any toy car Mm -hmm. ever had before. So this year's inductees, we have uh, the board game Clue, the Wiffle Ball, and the Paper Airplane. How would you describe the induction class of 2017? You know what links all of these is that they're really a DIY group. It really requires do-it-yourself. Paper Airplane is every parent's dream toy. The kids make it themselves. And all it takes is a little bit of inexpensive raw material. It brings uh, aspiring aeronautical engineers out of all of us to figure out a design that has the best lift and drag coefficient and thrust to get it to fly as far and long as possible. And similarly, wiffle ball isn't like playing little league or sports in school. It's something that you really have to assemble yourself. You need to say, okay, the back porch is home base, the maple tree is first base, and probably work with many fewer than a standard baseball team to get your game going. And the same thing goes with Clue. This isn't a game where you just roll the dice and you go around the board. You really have to bring your deductive qualities to it to decide if Miss Scarlet did indeed commit the murder with the candlestick in the library. <laughs> Do we have uh, the, the vote results in terms of who was picked first, second, and third? We don't break it down that way, but these were absolutely the top tier. There was a huge division with the next tier down in the 12 finalists. Uh, I want to talk about Clue for for, uh, a minute or so. Uh, We're talking with uh, Chris Ben. She's the vice president for collections at The Strong, uh, which uh, houses the uh, National Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, We'll go through some of the past inductees as well. But the board game Clue, I mean, a, a timeless classic, and I would suspect received overwhelming support for induction because, I mean, we've been playing this game for years, and it, it, w- it was really 
a, um, a kind of an eye-opener when it first came out, but it has been, as I said, a timeless classic. It's still going strong. It is, and as with so many games today, it is getting refreshed with branded licensed versions. We just got a Star Wars Clue version where you can be Princess Leia or Chewbacca or C-3PO, and you are playing on a three-dimensional Death Star board. So this makes it current to people who love Star Wars and may not know their Agatha Christie mysteries from... You name it. <laughs> uh, the Wiffle Ball, certainly it's been around for decades now, and it has saved many windows from being broken. <laughs> a, a, beyond being a good toy, a great invention. It is, and we were so thrilled to have the second and third generations of the family business that still makes the Wiffle Ball in North America with us for the induction ceremony. So that was an extra treat. There is, to me, uh, a disconnect with the paper airplane because there's no doubt, as you mentioned, I mean, anyone can make a paper airplane and probably has in their lifetime, but I'm not sure it's a go-to toy for kids uh, of any age, young and old. I mean, everyone can make it and you play with it for a few minutes, but then, you know, the nose gets dented, it's not flying right, you get frustrated. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, for me, the, the paper airplane's a disconnect. I, I'm not sure how, what you think. Well, it may be a continuation of our inducting the cardboard box, the stick, and the blanket into the Hall of Fame. So we are really encouraging the kind of elemental creative play that can happen when kids and grown-ups take raw materials and turn them into playthings. And uh, I'll admit, of the four of those, cardboard box, stick, and blanket and paper airplane, the one I would want most want to have at my access is a cardboard box. I would agree with you, and I know the cats love it as well. So it's it's multi <laughs> it's multi use, but you can do so much so much more with a cardboard box. Box you can make a castle, you can flatten it out, you can make a you know a partial tent out of it, uh, multifaceted. That's right, and paper airplane. You're correct; is a little bit more limited, but it is still something that visually and spatially really sticks with people, whether it's the go-to thing that they use to fill hour after hour. Mm -hmm. It's still something great for a study hall in school or passing notes to your friend on the other side of the classroom. Or, or killing time in a restaurant as you're waiting for your meal. You just fold your napkin. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, we're chatting with uh, Chris Bench, uh, Vice President for Collections at The Strong, which houses the uh, National uh, Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, can you, you mentioned the Maxbox, uh, Matchbox cars being passed over, uh, or the Magic 8-Ball, sorry, being passed over uh, seven times. Can toys that have been passed over, do they have to be re-nominated for induction? They do need to get renominated, but that is so easy to have happen. Your listeners can go to toyhalloffame.org right now and start nominating for the 2018 class. This is better than democracy. You can nominate your favorite over and over again. Last year, we heard from more than 4,000 people for more than 500 different toys. Wow. So those were our sort of giant pool that we boiled down to the 12 that best met our criteria of longevity, play value, and icon status. Is that about a, an average year, about uh, four or 500 toys? That is. And uh, people sometimes say to me, are you worried that you're going to run out of great toys that are deserving of meeting the criteria. And I have no fear that for decades to come, there are going to be classic toys that 
deserve a place of honor in the National Toy Hall of Fame. Is, what would you say is maybe the most obscure or or outlandish toy that has been nominated and may not ever have a chance to get in, but has really caught your eye to say, wow, actually, somebody actually nominated this? I personally take heck every year from a friend who thinks that dirt should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> well, and, sand can get in. Dirt can. Right. And he is going to <laughs> rake me over the coals one more time because sand got to be a finalist before dirt did and there are also the water advocates who are not the same as the snow advocates so people really go back to these timeless playthings that are basic elements of our physical world wow now snow would be interesting because now now you're you're at a different level because now you can do so many more things with snow that you can't do with sand i mean you can throw sand but i mean you can throw a snowball you can build a fort a snowman uh you can go skiing with it or whatever the case is that would be very interesting it would although it worries me as a curator who needs to put something in a showcase to display (laughs) snow is tougher than sand very much so, very much so. Uh, in, in the sports world, we talk about being a slam dunk or, or a particular athlete, being a slam dunk Hall of Famer. You know, they may be currently playing now, uh, you know, Bryce Harper with the Washington, uh, Washington Nationals or an Aaron Judge with the New York Yankees. You know, this guy's a surefire Hall of Famer if he continues to produce. Are there any current toys right now that would be in the uh, slam dunk toy Hall of Fame kind of category? Ooh, that is so hard to foresee because there are toys that are one-year sensations or even a couple, and then technology or attention or just general culture moves on, and they are of their era but not timeless in the way that toys in the Hall of Fame are required to be. Hmm. Um, I'm told that uh, this year one of the hot toys is a reissue of Tickle Me Elmo. So from being a sensation of the 1990s, he's back here in 2017. So maybe he's going to prove that he has what it takes to stand the test of time. And from my recollection, I don't think Tickle Me Elmo is in the Toy Hall of Fame right now, correct? He is not, so uh, he's sure got a chance. He's got longevity going. (laughs) Uh, I know it's probably hard to pick your favorite toy that's already in the hall, or may not necessarily be in the hall, but do you have a top three or even a top five? I am looking across my office at my personal childhood hula hoop that I keep in at hand just in case there's a hula hooping emergency and I need to pull (laughs) that out and entertain a group. Uh, I do not have many sports or other physical skills, but I am a good, solid hula hooper, so that is my go-to toy at any time. Hula hoop inducted in uh, 1999. Uh, That's a good, another timeless classic. That's never going to go away. That's right. Well, Chris, thank you for the time. Thanks for shedding some light on the uh, the voting process, how it works, and uh, all the nominations that you guys get. Uh, I think the class is a strong one. Uh, Looking forward to uh, next year at this time. All right. I'll look forward to talking to you then. Have a good day. All right. Chris Bench, Vice President for Collections at The Strong, which houses the National Toy Hall of Fame. This year's inductees, the board game Clue, I think a solid choice, good board game. I can really enthrall you for, I wouldn't say hours. If you haven't figured it out in in an hour, uh, you're in trouble. Or it's a very competitive game. Uh, The Wiffle Ball, which, uh, as I said, has saved many a window. Many, whether it's backyard baseball 
or uh, you got the old golf clubs out in the backyard, you're, you're not going to be, you know, chipping a uh, a regular ball around because that, that's <laughs> that's going to be costly. You're going to be chipping around a little wiffle ball, a little wiffle golf ball. Great invention. And uh, the paper airplane, I I can I can make a paper airplane right now, but I will not in protest because I'm not a big paper airplane advocate in terms of the Toy Hall of Fame. I understand why it's there. Versatile, you can make all sorts of different paper airplanes. Easy to do. You can do so anywhere, pretty much. But in terms of pure enjoyment, I mean, once you toss it around a couple of times, that's about it. It gets damaged. It might fly under the couch. The cat might chase after it. The dog's probably chewing on it. And that's it. You either got to make another one or you say, okay, what's next? What am I going to do now? You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A new study from Ancestry conducted by Leger's online panel reveals that millions of Canadians will not commemorate Remembrance Day. 13% of Canadians, that's about 3.7 million, do not commemorate Remembrance Day in any way. This certainly caught my eye. Uh, Leslie Anderson is a content specialist at Ancestry and a genealogist and joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Leslie, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, maybe we'll get to the nuts and bolts of the survey, and then we'll try to figure out what's going on here. Number one, take us through the study. How was it conducted? How many people were asked? As you said, it was an online survey of around 1,500 people, and it was commissioned by Ancestry to get a good understanding of who was going to be commemorating Remembrance Day. And it actually came out uh, from an earlier uh, study we did earlier this year, and we we uh, found out that one million people uh, descended from soldiers that fought at the Battle of Vimy Ridge, but they didn't know it. So based on that, we did this other online survey, and it was quite sad, really, to find out that so many Canadians do not commemorate it. So uh, the I'm just going through some of the survey findings here. Almost one in five, so about 19%, between the ages of 18 and 34 do not commemorate Remembrance Day. Uh, and 15% of those aged 35 to 44 are in the same boat. Uh, one of the more interesting findings as well is in Quebec, nearly 40% do not commemorate the day at all. That, that's a high number. That's huge, right. And when we asked why they don't commemorate the, the day, nearly a quarter of them claimed it's because they really just didn't feel a connection or they didn't have that connection and it, it really didn't resonate with the younger the younger crowd as well. And so I, I really think that using this time to remember the soldiers and perhaps based on the other survey that they didn't even know they were related, maybe take the time this weekend. Ancestry is opening up the military databases. Put in your family name and put in what you know, or maybe a community member uh, on the cenotaph in your community, and see what pops up, because we have over 200 years of military documents like service files and death and burial records and honors and awards and things like that. And you may find that you very well are related to somebody who's been in uh, the military over the past 200 years. So when you say Ancestry is opening up the the military files, so to speak, what, what does that mean? So we have hundreds 
of thousands of records on ancestry pertaining to what we call our military collections. And in Canada, we have Canadian military records spanning more than 200 years of service, right back when the British military were here. And I always say if you've got an Irishman and you've lost them, take a look in the military collections because a lot, a lot of our ancestors signed up for the British military in the early 1800s. And uh, you might even get a description of what even that far back your ancestor looked like. They'll give you, you know, how, how tall he was, what color his hair was, does he have any tattoos. And those are the kinds of documents you can see within the service files that we have on Ancestry that we've digitized and made them searchable by name. And so you may get some surprises. I always wondered how how uh, Ancestry uh, works. So how do you get all these files and all this information? How can you connect a name to all this info? Well, that's a great question. Uh, we don't do the research for you. We, uh, like, we encourage people to set up their free trees and, you know, set up and... and Start with what you know with your family and punch it in, and that's all free to do. But when it comes to the records, the actual historical records, we've worked in partnership all around the world with governments and agencies that, uh, like provinces in Canada that provide birth, marriage, death records, census records, passenger lists, and we've worked with those uh, agencies in order for us to help them digitize it. And then Ancestry Service is that we um, index it as well. So it is name searchable or place searchable. And so um, that along with the new DNA that's out there that's helping us make new discoveries about living relatives, um, it is just a wonderful, wonderful combination of using historical records and science to find your relatives, really, and learn more about your relatives. And as I said, this weekend until the 12th, we've opened up the military collections, and I encourage people to go up and, and try. We, ha we also have a two-week free trial, which will allow you to get to all the other historical records that we have. We're chatting with uh, Leslie Anderson here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Leslie is a genealogist and a content specialist at Ancestry, talking about uh, a new study uh, conducted by Leger's online panel, which reveals that uh, more than 3.7 million Canadians will not commemorate Remembrance Day, including 40% of those uh, surveyed in Quebec, which is uh, an astronomical number. Uh, the uh, the other figure that got me, and you mentioned it, was the 1 million Canadians who are descendants of veterans who fought at Vimy Ridge, and they have no idea they are. That is, that's unbelievable. It is, and I think that's, again, just the disconnection that maybe you lose your history, the stories, or maybe you just weren't aware that, you know, a great uncle fought in World War II and lost his life in Vimy. And um, we have a, a searchable, you put your name in, and I did it myself. I, I didn't think I had a, a relative, but I put my maiden name in. And uh, I saw that uh, uh, there was somebody who died at Vimy Ridge, and I wanted to learn more about him. And it ended up that he was, um, he was a home child and sent to Canada when he was seven years old. It broke my heart to see his little fat signature on the passenger list. And he came to Canada out of poverty, and he had a, his family. His mother was still alive back in, in London, England. He very well could be my relative. And he actually grew up 10, 10 11 years later and gave his life at Vimy Ridge. So you really 
feel connected. It's it's not just Remembrance Day about the anonymous people that gave their lives. It's a good time to sit down with your family and yourself to just go through the database, see whether you do have a connection, and or learn about the people in your community that did sacrifice their lives. We've talked about uh, the uh, Canadians who uh, don't plan to commemorate Remembrance Day, but there are a ton who will be commemorating yeah. it. So let's go and through some of those the, stats. that is the good news. Yeah. yeah, that's the good news side. So most of us, um, especially regionally, we found that uh, Ontarians, 92% of Ontarians are going to say they will commemorate. And usually we commemorate 70% of us are going to buy or wear a poppy. Now, I've seen some things in the news, uh, like on the Facebook, and my daughter's in the military as well, and she's commenting that she's not seeing so many poppies this year, but apparently... 70% of us will buy or wear a poppy. 52 of respondents said that they're going to observe a moment of silence. But a very low number, and we would like to see this number go up with the opening of our databases, 13% are going to speak with their family or children about our military history and the efforts of our our Canadian soldiers. So I really encourage you to... um, Talk to your family, investigate, and you may you may learn uh, a little bit about the lives of all the people that that gave their lives and the families that affected uh, during uh, World War One and the killed in action in World War Two. Does that that low figure, that three percent who plan to speak to their family or kids about it, does that go to uh, us just not being as patriotic as maybe we should be? It's 13, sorry, 13. Oh, 13, sorry. Yeah, but still, that is, it is kind of low. Um, I think, I think maybe it's because, I mean, there was a period of time where, I don't know about you, but, you know, I grew up, I, I do have a military connection. My, my parents were both in World War II. But there was a period of time, a long period of time, where we didn't even commemorate it as a, as a country. It, it didn't really come back into, into fashion, I guess, to to honor our uh, military uh, heroes until about the 1990s. I, I seem to remember it was probably because there were, you know, less and less of the World War One vets around. And so we realized, oh my goodness, it's it's time we, you know, it wasn't just a couple of guys laying a wreath at the Cenotaph. And and I think that it's covered like a lot of, we feel it's covered in schools now. And uh, a lot of schools are embracing learning about their military ancestors or adopting a military uh, name on a cenotaph. And they go explore it through the records and do the history, uh, learn about the history through the records that uh, Ancestry can provide to, to you during this time. So I, I think at that number can go up i think if we just sit down and you know maybe ask our our parents did did you know your parents were they in the war like did they talk about it what do you does is there a medal i think you know we're trying to reunite people with their medals they're found in attics and things like that and those stories are so great and heartwarming and uh, you can connect with people who maybe you've lost sight of in um in your family as well. If someone does want to uh, dive into the uh, treasure trove of Canadian military records uh, that you have, where should they go? They should go to www.ancestry.ca and uh, a screen should pop up saying that we've opened up the military collections. And then beyond that, they should 
they should start their tree on Ancestry.ca as well. And they'd be able to attach those records that they find and save them to their computer as well so that they can refer back to them at a later date and then continue continue searching on their tree and be able to open up uh, looking at the census records with the two-week free trial and the birth, marriage, and death records. That's where I would say people should get started. Sounds like it could be uh, an eye-opener for many uh, of our listeners. Leslie, thanks for the time today. Thank you. Leslie Anderson, a content specialist at Ancestry, a genealogist as well, talking to us about uh, this survey conducted by Leger's online panel for Ancestry that reveals that more than 3.7 million Canadians will not commemorate Remembrance Day uh, at all. Uh, but it is good to find out that 92% of Ontarian respondents are going to commemorate it, 95 to 96% in Alberta and Atlantic Canada, and uh, men and women commemorate equally. 85% of men and 85% of women say that they will be at a cenotaph or wear a poppy or do something to commemorate uh, Canada's war veterans. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.